Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from one very disclosed location. It is the QI offices in Covent Garden. We are back. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here at a very comfortable two meter distance from Anna Tashinsky, Andrew Hunter-Murray and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one. And that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that there is a type of glue that was developed specifically to help strong men grab onto giant stone spheres. (laughs) (laughs) So cool. So strong men competitions, this is where you see them basically lift these giant boulders, don't you, up onto platforms. Yeah, so if you imagine on British television between Christmas and New Year, there's nothing else on TV (laughs) apart from World's Strongest Man, which is the best show ever, where they get these enormous men like pulling trucks and doing all sorts of stuff but like you say one of the things is called the atlas stones and there's a substance called spider tack that was invented by a part-time strongman and part-time molecular biologist called mike caruso Uh, he smashed all the test tubes Um, and yeah, basically he was carrying these big boulders and one of the big problems is actually gripping them as someone who's lifted a giant boulder myself. I could definitely Sorry. say that. Oh. I think I've mentioned it on this before Have that you? in what? Iceland, I was lifting some giant oh. boulders. Might come to that later. Okay. But anyway, so um, he was struggling to grip them. So he took some rosin. Um, which is that stuff that if you play the violin, Andy, for instance, you put on your bow to sure. make it. Yeah, I'm just helping you here. Yeah, thank with you. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel comfortable. And then he <laughs> added some polymers to the rosin, and he can't disclose what kind of polymers are in it. He calls it a special sauce, uh, and he came up with this incredibly sticky stuff. Now, he sold about 10 of these a year, mm. so it wasn't really a big deal, but it's come up really recently because it's basically spoiled baseball. Because baseball pitchers who throw the ball have discovered it and if they put it on their hands it makes their hands able to spin the ball a hell of a lot which makes the ball impossible to hit Mm. and so it's come into the news recently that this stuff exists yeah because so it is a big controversy at the moment in baseball because batting averages are at the lowest they've ever been and they think it's because specifically of this kind of glue and other glues that are being brought in but it's just whole new era of baseball where everyone's striking out and yeah yeah there was um, the Yankees have got a pitcher called Garrett Cole and they signed him on a nine-year deal for $324 million in 2019. He was the best pitcher ever. They, you know, mm. they had to pay all this money for him. They, sorry, they signed him for $324 million? Yeah. Over nine years. Wow. Oh, over thought... nine years. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. only about $40 million a year. Come on, Anna. Exactly. You cheapskate. <laughs> sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but they asked That's him cool. if he used spider attack. And he was really, really evasive in this interview. It's amazing. He's like, oh, um, I don't know how to answer that question. The question was, do you use spider attack? And he said, I don't know how to answer that question. And there's a suggestion that his um, form has gone really badly down in the last couple of weeks because they've now banned this spider attack. And all the commentators, I'm not saying it's true, but all the commentators are saying that it's because they've stopped him from using it. He's suddenly turned into a terrible pitcher. Interesting. What's amazing, though, is that the inventor, this, this Hulk Bruce Banner guy, half chemist, half (laughs) big monster. Um, 
he doesn't quite know how they're using it in baseball because it's too sticky he, a substance. He right? doesn't like baseball. Right. Yeah, there's an amazing oh, wow. interview with theathletic.com by Stephen J. Nesbitt, a journalist. And he found this guy and he asked him, you know, what do you think of this? And he goes, oh, I had no idea it was popular in baseball. I don't watch baseball. In fact, I don't watch any sports. I'm too busy to watch sports. So he didn't yeah. realise that he spoiled this sport. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, is it cheating to use glue when you're trying to lift up a stone sphere? Do you guys think? Good question. Good question. Yeah. I think no, because I think the whole purpose is the the weight of it. I think obviously you could lose grip, but I think mm -hmm. we're trying to look at who can hold things that are really heavy as opposed to mm. who's got good grip on an object. Well, I would say part of holding things, a crucial part, <laughs> is, <laughs> is grip. I think you're right. I, it's often, a lot of these stones are in Scotland, aren't they? And when it's rainy a lot there, so that must make it a yeah. lot harder to lift the stone. Does rain make it harder? I figured that would give you more grip. It's because, like, you know, if you put your hands on wet surfaces, don't our hands go a bit... Yeah, um, that's, that, that's actually why cars can stop so easily <laughs> in, in rainy conditions. No, but what yeah. I'm saying is our hands yeah. adapt they to... Go wrinkly, so they go wrinkly. They? It gives you handhold grips, natural handholds. That's hand a hold. good point. I'm not sure it's proven that the reason our hands go wrinkly is for grip. I know that's one of the dominant theories. Yeah. Imagine yeah. if there was one really strong man and he was the strongest in the world but he's a real butterfingers <laughs> and so he lost every single tournament for That's that reason right. he's got no fingerprints yeah he can't lift it he can't lift anything but he can commit crimes <laughs> <laughs> so someone else wins a trophy and he steals it off them exactly <laughs> serious um they're also called manhood stones aren't they sometimes mm -hmm. no. and there seems to be a very important one in iceland which may indeed be the one that you've lifted oh. have you lifted the husafell stone yes i oh no i haven't no the husafell stone no Oh, that's the the biggie. You that's, just lifted any old stone in Iceland. The, the Husafell stone is just one stone that yeah. you carry from one place to another. It's in someone's garden or something, I think. It's right? in. I think it's been used as a strongman stone for over a century, and before that, it was used as a gate to a goat pen in Iceland. <laughs> wow, what a promotion! I know, huge, huge, huge. Well, maybe you preferred being the goat cool. goat checker. Sure. Um, but uh, that's the that's the big one that people go and lift if they want to. Yeah. And right. And there are also four more uh, in a place called Djupalonsadur, um, where there are four different size stones. I have mentioned this before. I, whichever one you can carry would depend on where you would work on the boat. Uh -huh. And the people who lifted the heavier one would be in the more difficult rowing place, but they would get more of the catch so they get more fish when they when it came oh. in so where are you in the boat well i'm not very strong <laughs> there's one called useless which is 23 kilograms which is relatively easy to lift and then there's one called weakling which is 54 kilograms which i could lift but i found extremely difficult and it was the grip genuinely like right. you could kind of get it on your knees and lift it up quite easily but just getting your hands around it and then the other two half strength which is 100 kilos and full strength which is 154 kilos barely could move them like the big that's, one literally couldn't move it i mean that's that's really heavy is there anything for like is there a stone which would give you an administrative role on the docks not being on the boat at all <laughs> just a little pebble yeah in exchange for some sardines every day the thing is when i did it there was um it was really raining and i always use that as an excuse that oh it was really slippy and right. stuff but now you mentioned that my hands would have gone wrinkly that's no excuse you should anymore. have held on longer yeah if you want to try atlas stones at home uh, you can buy spider tack online uh, and you can also buy atlas stones online uh, i found one uh, 75 kilo ball which was 200 pounds uh, 50 pounds shipping because yeah. <laughs> presumably you need a strong <laughs> man <Poor> to <laughs>
That's so funny. Do you know what one of the hardest things about being a strong man is? Well, the, the lifting of things. You'd think the lifting, mm, that's yeah. pretty bad. But according to Lloyd Reynolds, who is a strongman and an NHS physio, it's uh, driving up and down the British motorways. Oh, yeah. These long drives. Right. Basically, travel is the biggest problem for strongmen. When they get on a plane, their seats, they're like, our butts are too big. We're way too bulky. Yeah. So mm. air attendants tend to sit them if they can in their own row so that the other person next to them is wow. not getting squished. They try and give them as many breaks to stand up and stretch That's and move really around. interesting. Did I ever say the thing on here? I don't think I did. About um, I read an interview with some discus throwers and they're really big guys, especially around the shoulders. And whenever the American Olympic team goes to the Olympics, the discus throwers always sit next to the long distance runners because the long distance <laughs> runners are so skinny. <laughs> and presumably they must be sat on the side of the dominant throwing arm, right? Because that's going to be, <laughs> yeah. that's a bulky arm. Maybe um, that's why they are always pulling planes and cars. They just can't fit in them. Yeah. <laughs> They've got to get it up there, picking someone up. There, there was a World's Strongest Man competition, which was in... Botswana in 2016 and all 30 competitors had to get on the same plane from Johannesburg to Botswana <laughs> and apparently there was one of the competitors Brian Shaw has won World's Strongest Man four times pretty big guy he's six foot eight he weighs 31 stone wow and when he was on the plane he couldn't fit into the loo and he had to take aim from outside <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Was it a number one or a number two? <laughs> it's a big old manhood stone coming out. <laughs> Do you know who is the world's strongest woman at the moment as of 2020? Mm. No. It is someone we've mentioned on the podcast. Is it uh, the Courtney watermelon? Olsen? Yeah, Courtney Olsen. It is Olga Liaschuk, who was the former holder of the watermelon crushing record oh, before Courtney no came way. along. Courtney, wow. Yeah. I saw a really good interview with her because they asked her about her diet and she says she prefers newborn babies. <laughs> it's a joke, it's a joke, Badass. of course. Uh, and there's a brilliant video of her carrying a 200 kilogram yoke. So a yoke is like what a milkmaid would hold right. like a, a stick across the shoulders with two heavy weights on it uh, and she's walking supposedly with this yoke but she's going so fast the judge who's not carrying anything can't keep up with her Whoa. she's wow. amazing honestly incredible wow the other thing they carry is fridges famously mm. and so this it's a classic strongman test uh, 1977 first world strongest man contest have you guys ever seen the video of that no, no. So it was the first one ever, and it wasn't really a thing being a strongman, and so no one really knew how to train for it. Everyone came from a real range of backgrounds, usually like some kind of sport. But Franco Colombo was the one of the competitors in 1977, World's Strongest Man, and he was famous at the time for blowing up hot water bottles until they exploded. Um, <laughs> and other feats of strength like that. Worst house guest ever. <laughs> That's pretty. I mean, that's a different kind of strength. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? He it's, could also bend yeah. steel bars. But he the problem was he was much smaller than the other competitors. He weighed about 100 pounds less than most of the other competitors. Okay. And they hadn't safety tested the fridge race. And you, you should look it up if you can hack it. They start with fridges on their backs. And they start running. And within about two strides, his <gasps> leg... Snap! <gasps> oh no! This is like a tug of war fact all over again. So sorry. He's fine. He's fine. There's an interview with him in hospital later. He's like, that was a bit of a bitch. Wow. And they, they cancelled the fridge race until 2004. And now they have a crossbar and a fridge on each side to balance right. the weight. But it is an unbelievable thing to watch. Oh, Presumably, he imme had immediate access to a bag of cold peas to put on the. <laughs> <room>. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that the first animated puppet film used insect corpses as the puppets. Mm. Wow. Uh, it's pretty creepy, but very cool. <laughs> this was a sort of one of the founders of animated film, Władysław Starowicz. He was an ent- started out as an entomologist, Polish entomologist, and moved into animation. This was at the turn of the 20th century. And so he loved insects. So at one point he was director of the Museum of Natural History in Lithuania. And in 1909, he decided he wanted to make a film that just showcased how cool the stag beetle was, his favorite insect. And he wanted to show two male stag beetles fighting over a mate. But when he tried it, they died under the sort of glare of the film lights (laughs) and their legs sort of melted off, whatever. So he thought, okay, this isn't gonna work. So he removed their legs and he exchanged the legs for tiny little wires attached to their thoraxes. They are not alive at this point, mm. attached to their thoraxes. And then he filmed frame by frame them fighting and moving, like stop motion. So he was also, some Russians say, for instance, because he was born in Russia, Russians sort of claim him as the father of stop motion, although there are some rivals for that. But yeah, he would move the insect's leg a millimetre and then show it again, and a millimetre and they're, show it again. They're all online and they are phenomenal oh, to they're, watch. Oh, they're captivating, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, I mean, his whole catalogue mm. of work is online that you can see but yeah these these insects these beetles at the time people who watch them i read this in one place i haven't been able to find the actual reviews that say this is true but they it was so convincing what he did people thought it was basically amazing insect training i I found one of those reviews right It, it said in 1911 the trainer must be a man of magical endurance and patience yeah. So yeah, and and he didn't give away the secrets of how he did it either. He wanted to keep the mystique. So he also hinted that there were gears and pulleys at work, mm. and that he. I mean, he was really he was definitely keeping his secret. Um, yeah, yeah, it was definitely advertised. At least in Britain, for some reason, it was advertised as trained insect puppets oh, on film. That's so you can cool. imagine it would take, draw more attention than dead things I've strapped wire to. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting that the Russians claim him as their own because his whole family hated Russia. because he was uh, born around Moscow but he was taken to Kaunas in Lithuania uh, modern day Lithuania because his father didn't want him to be too Russian really Um, and so he stayed with his grandfather in Kaunas and he was expelled from school for skipping the orthodox mass which was like a Russian church so he didn't really want to be part of that because his father had kind of taught him to be like this and he invented a shooting range in his house which had moving figures and one of the figures was General Muravyov, who was like the famous Russian um, general who kind of put down the November uprising. And whenever you shot him, he would kind of fall down and then be hanged by his neck. Whoa. Wow. Uh, and his grandparents forced him to take it down because they knew that if the local police saw it, then they would probably take him away and stuff. Yeah, so it's not was... going to do It's hard to spin that as, <laughs> no, it's, a, it's an ode to your great work. Uh, yeah, that's as oh, a that's child. Incredible. That's like, so you can see where he got all the kind of moving parts of his insects. Yeah, and stuff yeah, going. yeah. That's awesome. And he was Polish as well. He seems to have claimed lots of different nations, um, but his parents were Polish, hence the Poland and Russia had a bit of an awkward relationship. Oh. Like that. Yeah. He changed his name at some point, didn't he, as well? Was that in connection to that? That was when he moved to France, because mm. um, obviously it's a bit of a... I'm glad Anna pronounced his name at the start, which <laughs> Starovich is not so hard, but how do you pronounce his first name? Something like... Fortunately, it's my granddad's name, so ah. I know it's Vladislav. I think it's, that's probably incorrect. I'm it, sure a Polish listener can write and correct me. I think it's right, because it's got that L with a line through it, which yeah. is like pronounced 
like a W a little bit, isn't it? I yeah. think or something. Yeah. But yeah, he moved oh. to France and he changed his name to make it a bit easier for people to pronounce. I think mm. to Ladislas Starovich. Yeah. Did you? I'm sure you guys read loads of the descriptions of the movies. I really like the cameraman's revenge. Did you see this one? <laughs> mm. This yeah, is so good. So it. Mr. and Mrs. Beetle, a married couple, they're bored. <laughs> it, they became yeah. less realistic over time, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> so Mr. Beetle meets a dragonfly. Uh, who is in the middle of an affair with Mr. Grasshopper, right? But Mr. Beetle is so sexy, he steals away Mrs. Dragonfly from Mr. Grasshopper. Grasshopper, the cuck in this scenario, is furious, but he's also a cameraman, okay? And he films Mr. Beetle's affair with his ex, Miss Dragonfly, right? Anyway, Mr. Beetle and Mrs. Beetle, they're eventually reconciled with each other, and um, they, you know, they get back together and they say, let's go to the movies. But the projectionist at the cinema <laughs> is Mr. Grasshopper, wow. and he puts on a movie called The Unfaithful Husband, which is footage of Mr. Beetle having it off with Miss Dragonfly. I have some questions about this, about beetles and dragonflies <laughs> having sex with each other. That's unrealistic, surely. It's kind of fan fiction, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of plot for what were, I thought, like 30-second movies back in the day. <laughs> How long is this? This was his. Uh, this is his magnum opus. This is his Citizen Kane. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but anyway, it's... I think it was. A, it was a bit longer. It was a, few a few minutes. Yeah, it's about thirteen minutes. I can see now. Yeah. Oh, okay. I think his magnum opus came a bit later, wasn't it? It was the Tale of the Fox, which was the first oh. feature animation film. So it's over an hour long. Oh wow. Um, and that's what I find interesting about that is it's based on a Goethe story um, called Reinecke Fuchs. Um, which is based on a much, much older kind of medieval story um, called Reynard the Fox. Mm. And Reynard the Fox is basically, it's a fox and a wolf, and the fox is very sly and amoral, but he's very charismatic, and he always gets into trouble. And you have all these medieval stories about this fox doing naughty things, but eventually a bit like Dennis the Menace kind of yeah. getting his way in the end. Um, and these tales have been going since the 12th century, and in English, they're called Reynard the Fox. In French, they're called Renard the Fox. And Renard is now French for fox. And so the French word for fox comes from this character from oh, medieval wow. history. Oh, Isn't that interesting? Cool. Yeah. yeah. Fox the fox. Cool. That's awesome. And in that one, he so he got adept at making other animals, didn't he? Not just insects. And in fact, everywhere seems to say he worked completely alone, which he did. He didn't like outside influence and he turned down Hollywood because he wanted to do it all himself. But he didn't like outside of his family assistance, but his wife was a tailor, I think, and his wife made a lot of the animals for him. Mm. And his daughter directed and wrote a lot of his films with him. But in uh, The Reynard the Fox, he made like, I think he made some lots of animals out of different animals. Seems really weird, like the lion was made of deer skin, I think. And <laughs> just really mixing it up. Wow. But and it's very adult content. Really? Animation yeah. was not for kids back then. I mean, yeah, and it, again, that one. Look that up online. The animation is phenomenal yeah. in that. It's absolutely extraordinary. And as you were saying, James, it was the first animation, so it beat Snow White, which is seen as the seminal opening animated movie mm. of uh, Hollywood. It beat it by eight months in coming out. So this guy was a true pioneer who's sort of been lost to the yeah. annals of history slightly. Yeah. Mm. Do you want to hear the least relevant fact that I found in the research for this sure. section? Mm -hmm. It's about art and insects and drawings right mm. and filming so this is a sports writer fact and in fact it's a newsy one there is a team of two men whose job is to go along the length of the route of the tour de france and their job is to draw butterflies out of penises that people have graffitied <laughs> on the road <laughs> <laughs> they <laughs> 
They're called the Eraser Men, Les Effaceurs. And this is a great article about them on the Ruler website. Basically, you're filming from above, aren't you? The Tour yeah. de France. And yeah. people go along the route every year writing insane graffiti. They There's, draw a lot of syringes because they're implying that, you uh, know, the cyclists are all. There's loads drugs. of messages like Ale, yeah. um, Philippe, or whoever. Like, yeah. whoever's. They, they put messages for their favorite riders, but exactly. I've never seen a penis. Well, that's because the Les Effaceurs are doing their job. Um, and every 100 meters or so on the route, apparently, there's a penis and they have to transform it or they make it unrecognizable if they can't yeah. do a decent butterfly. Are the testicles the two big eyeballs? I think. <laughs> <laughs> I would think that the I'd, the wings might be relevant there, yeah. but they're they're versatile, is what I'm saying. And they change the syringes into ladders, and you know ladders. they they just they pointed it on the top of that ladder. Yeah. Is that a, a fireman's pole? Yeah. Yeah. Turn that into the Empire State Building instead. You, you've yeah. got the yeah, nice. oh my god, Dan, they've got thousands of miles of road to go. And you're saying do the Empire State Building? It's got forty thousand windows on it. Oh my god, Dan. Who's who's paying them to do this? I think it, it's it either the broadcaster or the organizers, the organizers of the yeah. Tour de France. Yeah, That's great. I know they use hundreds of liters of paint. It's tough. It's tough work. <laughs> wow. It's not as tough as actually cycling in the Tour de France, <laughs> yeah. is it? But sure. I don't know. It must wow. be stressful. I don't know how far ahead of the Tour de France. <laughs> are. Come on, come yeah. on! I just need to do the proboscis on this butterfly. <laughs> They're catching up. Um, this this um, movie, The Tale of the Fox, which was by Starovich, we said was um, one of the early um, animations. It was the first feature animation puppet film. Uh, there were a few older feature animation films. The oldest that we have, which is still extant, is called The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, and it's by um, the German animator Lotta Reiniger. And she used a system a bit like um, Shadow Puppets. I don't know if you guys have seen, in fact, I know you have seen Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where, How do you know we've seen it? Well, I'm just looking <laughs> yeah, at you. Look around, yeah. <laughs> I've known you for long enough, but you've definitely seen that. We're all wearing our sorting hats, <laughs> carrying my wand. There's a bit where they tell the story a little short film inside the film called yes. The Tale of the Three Brothers. It's that kind of style. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this um, woman called Lotte Reiniger, she made this um, animation technique and she made loads and loads of movies and the first one she made was in 1926. What I like about her is that she later married her creative partner called Carl Koch, um, but she kept her name Lotte Reiniger so that she wasn't called a Lotte Koch. <laughs> <laughs> not sure that was the reason she did that. <laughs> it's gotta be. Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that the man who popularized toothpicks in American restaurants did so by paying Harvard men to eat at fine establishments and then shout at the waiters if they were told wooden toothpicks were not available. So this Amazing. is yeah, wow. it's a sort of um, sort of cheeky promotional tool to get your product <laughs> bought. Uh, this was a guy called Charles Forster, and he was a guy who had seen when he was overseas in Brazil toothpicks being used by um, many people in South America. He thought this is something that should be done here. So he went back home and he managed to design the modern day toothpick, the really cheap little wooden stick that we find in most places. That is Charles Forster's invention. And um, once he had the invention, he thought, how can I convince Americans that they need this in their mouths? Because it was seen as sort of a bit crude. No one was really interested in it. So he used to pay people, um, particularly sort of very rich people like Harvard men, to go in, (laughs) 
cause a ruckus and then they would threaten to never eat in the establishment again and once they left the next day Charles Forster would either himself or send someone else there going would you like to buy a box of wooden toothpicks and the owner goes of course yes thank you um, why didn't the owner ever go hmm how suspicious a bunch of Harvard guys randomly kicked up a huge fuss yesterday about this I mean you'd see it coming well he, he would sometimes go in first as well so let's say there was a shopkeeper mm-hmm. he would go into a shop and he would say to the shopkeeper, look, would you like to buy some of these new... I'm selling them toothpicks. You could buy a few boxes of them. And the shopkeeper would say, I'm not interested. And then he would hire a young person to go into the shop, ask for some toothpicks, not be able to get any because the shopkeeper had said no. Then he would go back. The shopkeeper would say, all right, I will have some toothpicks. Then the young people would go back in, buy the toothpicks, return them to Charles Forster, who then has the toothpicks back again that he sold to the shopkeeper in the first place. But well, he, then he reused the toothpicks. Yeah, he, he would resell them then to the shop, which to me means he's making a loss. Yeah, he's absolutely. Making a, if there's a markup in the shop, he's losing that amount of money. But I can only assume he then sells in bulk after that. He's like, I'll sell you 20 boxes. I hope so, because yeah. if not, maybe that's why this guy wasn't the biggest financier ever. But yeah, it feels like a risk, but I guess it was a risk that it was worth taking. Yeah. A lot of gullible shopkeepers and restaurateurs around in those days. He claimed his toothpicks were made of the choicest part of the white birch log. Which oh, yeah. sounds, sounds like... Sounds like he's getting one toothpick yeah, exactly. per log. <laughs> <laughs> really? He's just going to really find luxurious. the exact part of that birch tree. <laughs> but no, you make millions and millions from each one, didn't you? Yeah. And he, he did this all in a bit of America called Strong, which is in Maine. And for a long time... That was the toothpick capital of the world, as they as they called themselves. So 95% of all wooden toothpicks manufactured in America were out of strong. So we're talking something in, you know, around the World War II period, 75 billion toothpicks per year were being sent That's out. That's too yeah. many. That's it's too many. many. There was a thousand people living in that town at the time. So that meant each per year they were making 75 million toothpicks <laughs> that's a lot 5 billion they can't what were they being used for they they mostly went to waste surely given the world's population that would be every person using 25 per year but yeah. I'm sure they weren't as evenly distributed as that no yeah. and back then much smaller I mean yeah. Yeah. I like the fact that we're, we're talking about strong in Maine strong Maine strong, we were talking yeah. about strong Maine earlier <laughs> yeah. uh, world's they, strongest um, Maine when the demand declined for toothpicks, when people realised we don't need a thousand each per year, <laughs> um, they tried to innovate because obviously these factories in Strong, suddenly they didn't know what to do. And so they tried to come up with new versions of toothpicks. And one of them was they would make it square in the middle so that when you put it on a table, it wouldn't roll off. I oh, yeah, read really that clever. too. I don't know how clever it is, Anna, because I think that it's never been a huge problem for me is you put your toothpick down on the table. It maybe, has for me. It has maybe, for me. Oh, come on, yeah, how yeah. wonky are your tables that a single <laughs> toothpick is rolling off? Just adjust the angle that the toothpick is on and that'll solve the problem. My housemates get really pissed off because I'm a compulsive toothpick user. I probably go through about 10 a day. Wow. And they are all go. over the floor. <laughs> Because you put them on your desk. Yes, it's a bit of a wobbly desk. It falls onto the sitting room floor. Yeah. Get a new one. It's yeah. an issue. And I uh, can't believe these didn't take off. I can't believe you were questioning how many toothpicks were needed <laughs> per know, day. I know. And the plot I'm the twist, consumer. Ten a day. <laughs> um, apparently he wasn't even very good at making stuff. Forster. I think he was just a good businessman, wasn't he? Like, he oh. requisitioned shoe peg makers to make toothpicks. And apparently they used the same skills, but... See, that seems so weird to me because a shoe peg was something that attached the like heel of a shoe, the base of a shoe, mm. to the top of a shoe. Mm. And so 
it's got to be quite thick to do that, right? That's like when you've got to attach two bits together yeah. in DIY. Yeah. It's got to be... Like a dowel. Like your thumb, mm. exactly. And then they turn that into a toothpick. That seems... If you're using a toothpick to hold your shoe together, <laughs> your shoe's coming off. But it's an yeah. easier... I guess it's an easier technology to adjust. It was probably one of the closest things to an actual toothpick that existed yes. or could be made at the time. You yeah. wouldn't take someone who made telegraph poles right. and then get them to make toothpicks because <laughs> exactly. that's a bigger change, isn't it? <laughs> you're right. <laughs> and they were often missing teeth back then, so maybe the gaps were a lot bigger. Yeah, great point. Oh, yeah. Um, I was I was reading a book which was called The Toothpick uh, by a guy called Henry Petrosky. Did you guys come across this? It's one of those great yeah. authors who just picks one item. Mm. And, cool. Yeah, and he he just tells the whole history of the object. So obviously Charles Forster invented the sort of very cheap disposable toothpicks, but toothpicks have been there throughout history. Royals have used them, but everyone sort of had a really spectacular toothpick that they could use over and over again wow they would often wear it in a box around their neck on. on a chain yeah you would carry Kidding. your toothpick that's there's there's in this book he claims that there is um definitely evidence that that during the renaissance that used to be done like um, people used to carry their knives around and stuff did people just have a load of cutlery attached yeah, to their body yeah. the whole time <laughs> spoon on the nose yeah, yeah. Well, there's, um, there's a there's an anonymous painting that was done called queen elizabeth as an old woman which shows her wearing multiple chains around her neck and one of them which would have had her toothpick in and we know that wow. she had toothpicks because in 1570 there's an account of her having received a gift of six gold toothpicks as well as and this seems to have disappeared from uh, sort of day use tooth cloths never heard of that <laughs> a little cloth for your teeth that's lovely. i guess instead of a brush did you just like hang yeah that's really weird yeah, maybe yes that's so cool anna you should get one of these things to hang around your neck you could just keep one toothpick in there yeah. Problem solved. I think that's a really good idea because at the moment I replace the toothpick back into my huge bowl of toothpicks that I keep in every room and then you don't know which one you last used. It's not very hygienic Are at you all. kidding? No. You put it back in the... Yeah. I don't think that's the point of the toothpick holder. Other people find that weird but it seems so wasteful <laughs> to just use it once. Absolutely. So there's a toothpick mystery that I think has been in the back of everyone's mind since the day you first saw one of these toothpicks. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know the toothpicks which are called Japanese toothpicks and they have little grooves at one end oh yeah yeah. those are the fancy ones in my mind they're the fancy ones exactly yeah. usually you see them in maybe a nicer restaurant <laughs> and why do they have those grooves so they don't roll as easily off the table grip um, increase your grip <laughs> avoid stabbing yourself in the gum grip very good answer rolling don't know if because they're not that the grooves aren't going that way so I don't know if that would help okay what they're for is they are for snapping the end off to indicate that the toothpick has been used, which you would not need to do if you were me, but a lot of people <laughs> like to say, this has been done, don't use it. And also, someone pointed out, and I don't know if this was in mind when they were designed, but you can then use the end you've snapped off as a stand. So another problem I always have with toothpicks mm. is that the end is lying on a table or a yeah. chair or sofa, and that gets dirty, right? Whereas if you- It sounds like it does in your yeah. house. If you, <laughs> if you prop it up with its other end, that you've yeah. snapped off. Mm. Isn't that so clever? Yeah, yeah amazing. No, it's really clever, yeah. Oh, um, people think that you shouldn't use toothpicks, though, right? A lot okay. of dentists say you shouldn't really use them. What? Um, because they can pierce your gums and give bacteria a chance to get in because they're quite spiky, especially the wooden ones. Ah. Um, Sounds so, like you're using them wrong. Well, the American Dental Association suggests not to use them. They say you should use... Um, there are certain better, like, softer toothpicks that you can use rather than those wooden mm. ones. Um, mm. Writer Sherwood Anderson died because he swallowed a toothpick. 
Okay, that is using it wrong. It's one thing to just poke it into your gum, but to eat the entire thing. Well, in fairness to him, uh, it was from a martini, so... Okay. Oh, so the olive, presumably, he was going for that. He must have really been thirsty. He must have been rushing to the bar. Can't wait to get that first drink. I'm just going to drink the whole thing in one. I'm... Uh, And there was a study in the New England Journal of Medicine about someone who swallowed a toothpick and nearly died. Um, It had been hidden in a sandwich, by which I don't think someone had actually hidden it. I think maybe it was holding the sandwich together and he hadn't noticed it. Uh, But the problem is, because it was made of wood, all of these scans, you couldn't see it. Uh, And even when um, they gave him a colonoscopy, they couldn't see it because it's so small. And even when they did surgery, it was really hard to see because the hole was so, so tiny. Mm. And it was only eventually when they were doing the surgery, they kind of found the toothpick lodged in his artery and they realized that that was the problem. Oh my God, his artery. It's a huge intestinal artery. Would that come out if it made it to his stomach? Would that have come out in, would it have been broken down? It's not guaranteed to. So this year, there was a report man in Japan, he'd swallowed a toothpick and he had months of pain in his back and leg and it had been stuck in his uh, basically in his rectum and wow. it was a seven centimeter long toothpick he swallowed by mistake oh, but this uh, so this does happen apparently in the 1980s in america alone 8000 people a year were being injured by toothpicks but not swallowing, right? That's no, that's, by, by, yeah, no, a lot of swallowing. Were they just lying underneath a table and it landed on them? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Presumably injuries could be from accidentally poking your throat too hard or like what are you what are you throat <laughs> for I, I, well, it's going in your mouth you might make a mistake you might miss your mouth you might miss it's your mouth it's quite hard even to get to the back molars to be honest a lot but... of people use it I mean I think q-tips were invented because the guy who invented q-tips saw his wife using a toothpick on her son or daughter's ears to oh, pick out okay. so like you know people do use I it for weird things I think in fairness they were putting a bit of cloth on the right. end of the toothpick right. it wasn't just shoving in the oh. spiky oh okay because I have done that with a toothpick <laughs> so wow yeah this is not my children on me <laughs> right oh, yeah, so yeah. Have you really yeah inside your ear yeah don't wow. do that but i think i've got to say the personal hygiene of all of both of you yeah. <laughs> thank you james thank you, you wish james. it was more than two meters now don't you <laughs> <laughs> um but there are lots of this is this is a huge problem there was a dentist who was interviewed by an outlet called shaw news he was called jamie bell he said more people choke on toothpicks than on food which i find extraordinary yeah, i saw that but i can't be true Absolutely can it not. i mean okay but there was an analysis uh, of toothpick swallowing cases which had made it to medical journals because obviously most toothpick incidents probably don't make it to a medical journal <laughs> but of the ones which make it to medical journals 10 percent are fatal of toothpick swallowing incidents, which is a lot scary. And of those, of all of the cases which have made it to the journals, half the patients didn't know that they'd swallowed a toothpick. Mm. So it seems like it's easier to do. So Anna, check yourself. I, I oh think, <laughs> but I think it's with what we were saying before. I've been to a few restaurants where to hold a big burger together, a toothpick yeah. goes in, and it goes in a bit too far, and you find yourself hitting on a toothpick as you're biting yeah. into the burger. Like that's where can happen. That's where the yeah. Yeah. They've obviously been fashionable throughout history um, in terms of having them sticking out of your mouth. Very, very right? cool. It is cool. Very cool look. Was very cool. It's dangerous, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You Living know, you're, on the edge. A, you're a bad boy, basically. <laughs> is that why cowboys are doing it? It's to signify yeah. they don't value their own life. <laughs> um, so, 1870s, it was extremely cool for people to be chewing on toothpicks. Apparently, every third woman in a particular area of Boston had one sticking out of her mouth at any one time. <laughs> well, this wow. was the, this was Charles Foster's boom, right? Yeah. This was as a result, oh, this was exactly. the moment, 1870s, it's yeah. when it erupted. Wow. But even before that, um, people obviously went around doing it. I was reading a 16th century book of kind of table manners, and it advised, do not go around with a toothpick in your mouth like a bird going to build his nest, or stick it behind your ear like a barber does his comb. 
Mm. Which obviously mm. implies people are people are doing that. Yeah. Have you guys heard of Stan Munro? No. Stan Munro, 10 years ago, his wife had a few operations, um, but while she was having her operations, um, Stan Munro needed to take his mind off things and so started to build stuff out of toothpicks. And he has built the most buildings out of toothpicks of anyone in the world. Um, he says the quickest one he had to do was the Washington Monument, uh, even though it's really big. <laughs> one toothpick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's more than one toothpick. The Eiffel Tower is four, just going up to the same point. They're Lovely. very, very intricate. He uses actual blueprints to make them. Wow. Cool. Um, they're all built one to 164 scale every single one wow. uh, and what's really cool is that um, he read that the workers on the Empire State Building when they did the real Empire State Building they used to carve their wives names into the buildings mm. and so in all of his toothpick buildings he has his wife's name somewhere in them how sweet Very really nice. well like carved into a toothpick I guess possibly into a few toothpicks because yeah. <laughs> otherwise that would be quite small but yeah yeah well there is this guy called Willard Wigan who we've actually mentioned once before ages ago um, who does tiny sculptures and one of the mm. things he does is um, he sculpts into individual toothpicks and he'll sculpt wow. famous people. So he did, back in the year 2000, he did the Beckhams. So David Beckham is one toothpick, Victoria Beckham is the other. Their kid was the other. And, I mean, it was <laughs> tiny, and it took him a week, I think. Will Wigan, is he the man behind the Impossible Micro World? Um, in Bath? I think yes, he is. Yes, he is, exactly. I, they had a touring exhibition, and it was the most incredible thing I've ever seen. It wow. was so good. Did you he have to everything through microscopes and stuff? Yes, you do, you do. Cool. He has, did you see um, the Beckhams? Sorry, I didn't see the Beckhams. I don't know if they were in that exhibition, but I remember he did a horse, a statue of a horse dancing, and the statue itself was balanced on the head of an ant, which was in the display case. Wow. He's unbelievable. I wrote to him once, but he never wrote back. He might have done, but his letter was so small. <laughs> <you didn't see. laughs> Just a tiny toothpick through your letterbox. <laughs> Okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is Andy. My fact is that there is a blue plaque in London which has its own blue plaque. Uh, <laughs> pretty cool. Yeah, Why great. does it? Why? Well, the original plaque, plaque one, as I'm going to call it from now on, is to Isaac Newton. And it was his home when he was the president of the Royal Society. It's in German Street, which is quite near uh, Piccadilly in London. And uh, the building was rebuilt uh, and it was finished in 1915 and the plaque was reattached but it then had a supplementary plaque attached saying this plaque was you know reattached it's not round the bonus plaque plaque 2 is rectangular okay. but they are both Doesn't blue okay. no and I, I should say I got this uh, from someone I know uh, Will Noble who had seen it in the works of Mark Mason who we know who oh, yeah. is a brilliant uh, who's been on collector fish. and has been on fish yeah yeah oh. Um, now, my understanding of blue plaques, the English heritage blue plaques, is that to, to earn a blue plaque, you need to have made a significant and positive contribution to society. Yeah. <laughs> and I would be interested to know what contribution that plaque made to yeah, society. Very good to point. Earn, you know, can so, I get a plaque? I mean, how easy can it be? I think maybe that was before the rules were tightened up. So English Heritage <laughs> yeah. took over in about the 1980s. They took over from the London County Council, and the London County Council took over from maybe the Royal Society of Arts, the first people to do it with the Royal Society of Arts. It's been through about four bodies have had the responsibility of putting up blue plaques, and yeah. English Heritage are now 
just in London, the ones they do, and they are, if you like the original, maybe the best, they're certainly the most stringent in their requirements, because mm. there are dozens and it's dozens really of It's really stringent, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Like, the first thing you need to do is die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you need to have been dead for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, so get in there early. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, someone has to nominate you. Um, but you're only allowed to nominate one person a year if you're a member of the public. Yeah. Um, so you can't just send loads and loads of, <laughs> what about this person, what about this person, what about this person? And then it goes to a panel of 12 people, um, including a few um, historians like Rosemary Hill and David Olasoga and people like that. And then um, they decide. And then you have another problem because you have to find the owner of the building. And sometimes they don't reply to your emails yeah. or they don't want, you know, they don't want. Uh, they write comment. back, but tiny. <laughs> you can put up a tiny plaque that's the size of a button. Um, uh, but yeah, some people don't want them on their house, do they? Bizarre. I mean, surely, if out of sheer selfishness, I guess it would increase the value of the building. Well, if it's... there was an interview with Howard Spencer, who's in charge of English Heritage. And he said that it does um, increase the value of your house for sure um, but not by enough um, he said you'd be better off modernising a bathroom than trying oh, okay. to get a blue black <laughs> um, but in the same article I read there was an interview with Caroline Mitwock who is a researcher who lives on Wimpole Street which is where Frederick Treves who was the surgeon of the Elephant Man lived uh, and she says it can be quite annoying because you get tourists kind of mm. stood outside gawping at your the front of your house yeah. and when you're trying to yeah. come in with your bags of shopping of you don't course. want to go around them so yeah it is there there are frustrations but and also they're so strict about the rules and there was a complaint a few years ago someone had wanted a plaque to elizabeth taylor mm-hmm. okay and they had written back saying it's not yet 20 years since she died and we are not as a result going to consider her mm-hmm. and the guy who had made the suggestion had kind of promised to elizabeth taylor that he would try and get her a plaque and he said it's so annoying they should just wave the rule because in 20 years all the fans who would have paid attention will themselves be dead and yeah. no one will pay any interest and i would have thought that's kind of the point of I why think... the 20 year rule exists yes. like, he's yeah. identified yeah. the reason for the rule english <laughs> yeah. yeah. going yes thank you for confirming we've made the right choice exactly yeah. although there was one person who um, called philip jones who was a trumpet player who died in 2000 uh, and people think that he probably will have a blue plaque in the end um, but the problem was they had to wait 20 years and that would mean that his wife who's still living would probably never get to see it mm. so you know you can see in a way that it would be nicer for some people to get it a bit yeah, exactly. yeah it would be nice but I'm afraid it's not the point of a blue <laughs> plaque to make everyone's Tom, Dick and Harry's wives happy <laughs> it's meant to be someone who's making a lasting contribution to the world and if everyone's forgotten you after 20 years then I'm afraid you don't deserve Okay, well, if you want one, you can just buy one yourself. (laughs) It doesn't really matter. I mean, there's nothing to stop you from just buying one and putting one on your own house. Absolutely. (laughs) I did find a blue plaque that went to someone who had only died 12 years before (gasps) receiving it. Who? Was this in the olden days? No, this is is in modern days. Um, I say someone, it's an animal, Dolly the Sheep. Uh, oh, but so, in sheep years. Uh, in longer. sheep years, yeah. exactly. It was actually 60 years. Uh, wow, I, I did they only make the one years. plaque for Dolly? <laughs> <laughs> Idiots. Yeah, that's in the um, Society of Biology in um, Edinburgh at the Roslyn Institute. Ah, okay. Yeah. That's a, that, there can't be many quadrupeds who have plaques. Um, I think the only other one that I could find was um, the dog 
who was the dog of the HMV painting his master's voice oh, dog. Nipper, is it But called? Nipper, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nipper's got a plaque somewhere. Are the, these all proper? This is an English heritage. I think there are probably no. quite a lot of other yeah. pet yeah. There's a couple of um, bipeds. I know humans are bipeds as well, the <laughs> yeah. feathered bipeds plaques, which are um, pigeons who were like during the World War II wow. kind of gave messages and stuff in World War One. Mm. That's really cool. Yeah. But not English heritage or I, English heritage? I'm not sure. There's even fictional characters that get given blue plaques. Um, so I, I was reading that one person who's real, Charles Dickens, has so many. He's got like 44 plaques around the UK. You know, so many places he went to and wrote a book there and so on. Mm. So scattered across the UK, he yeah. has them. But even his characters have some plaques. So Market Square in Dover um, is where David Copperfield apparently rested on a doorstep and ate a loaf. And uh, that, <laughs> yeah. that has a plaque. I have to, to say, I think that's insane. So there is a guy called Mike Reed. Oh, well, Mike Reed, the uh, DJ. Yeah, yeah. He is the chairman of the British Plaque Trust. And a few years ago, he made a sizzling intervention in the debate. He said there are way too many plaques. And he quoted that one, Dan, from David Copperfield saying, this is madness. Yeah. Mm. Or that there are plaques where, you know, uh, there's a hotel where J.R.R. Tolkien stayed for a couple yeah. of nights. Mm. Yeah. You know, he had a weekend break. Um, but again, like Anna says, these aren't the official English heritage no. ones. Is that right? That's uh, correct. Yeah, none of, none of them yes. are. So those Dickens ones, like Dickens does mm. not have 44 English heritage plaques. So basically, I don't really count plaques as plaques unless they're English heritage. Oh, really? <laughs> I think that's, uh, okay, yeah, they're yeah, not yeah, blue sure. plaques. They can be blue. They but are, they're, not, they are. Okay. they're not capital B, capital P. Yeah. yeah. Blue they can't be the sure. colour blue, but that's obviously completely no. different to... I mean, blue plaques can be brown, can't they? Yes. That's true. The original blue plaques <laughs> are brown. Yes. Very yeah. confusing. Howard Spencer said that we have no copyright right on the colour of plaques that's fair we just ask people try to make your style of plaque a bit different than ours Wow, and some people do, but some people really don't. Some people. No, why would you? No, I know. If you're going to put your own plaque on your front door, you're going to make it look as much like theirs as possible, aren't you? The way to tell, by the way, if you are a blue plaque spotter and you really are like Anna and you think only the English heritage ones are the true plaques, then look for the screws because official blue plaques do not have screws. They're kind of flush onto the stonework, ah. and the fake ones tend to be screwed on. Good to yeah. know. It's a re- that is go. a really good tip. Did you guys read about Frank and Sue Ashworth? The no. blue plaque team. Oh, the makers, yeah. Yeah, the makers of the only plaques. Um, so they've been doing English Heritage's blue plaque since 1984 when they took over from the previous guy who died, but they got the recipe that he'd been using, the <laughs> very specific recipe. How many years did they have to wait until they were given the recipe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, so it was the widow of the previous person who gave them the recipe, and they're so great. They live in Cornwall. They're hoping to hand down the business to their son, Justin. There's a great video, I think it's on the English Heritage site, of Sue, uh, the mother, and her son, Justin, who I guess they've been training up. And it's just a great family bickering session. So they're obviously doing a documentary about plaque making. He's making this plaque, like doing the engravings. Mm. She's giving the interview to the camera saying, I'm very aware of how important it is not to interrupt while people are concentrating. You know, I try really hard not to interrupt Justin and Frank. And then literally Justin starts talking about how, what a perfectionist he is. And she spends the entire time interrupting him saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so, you're doing it a bit. Oh, I just think the lettering is a bit thick. Sorry, sorry. For it is a bit thick there. It's just annoying to have to pare it down, isn't it, Justin? It's... It's oh, so, so sweet. funny. <laughs> oh, they're really sweet. They're yeah. lovely. Yeah. Um, also, the other person who fits into this scheme, apart from the Ashworth family, is a man called Trevor Ramsey from Sunderland. Did you find out about him? No. no. He is the man who fits all the blue plaques. And he's done 200 of them in the last 16 years. Cool. Yeah, and he he is the one who creates the hole in the wall, so it fits Uh, perfectly flush. And yeah, as James says, it can't be 
screwed on. It has there has to be a perfectly sized hole in the wall, and he hangs the curtains as well. I always wondered who did the curtains. <laughs> I love the curtains. I didn't know that. So there's a big reveal moment. Oh with yeah, the curtains. Didn't know always. That. There's always a reveal. You cool. know those curtains where yeah. I now declare this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so and I just I never knew who made the curtains. No, I think not very many people do. No. I think you're not going to get laughed out of a pub if you say, do you know, I'm so embarrassed about this, but I don't even know who makes the curtains yeah. blue Another hack question in tonight's pub quiz. <laughs> Everyone gets it. Um, the first ever plaque doesn't exist anymore. The first plaque put up in London. Uh. And it was to Lord Byron. And the house was demolished. It's now the central London John Lewis. And we don't even know which house it was because I think there's no clear evidence as to which house Byron uh, actually lived in. It was very early in his life. Um, but it was, it was destroyed in a bomb in the war and then another one was put up. I wonder mm. if he'd be happy that it's now selling overpriced crockery. Mm. Yeah. Okay, someone's not tried the everyday range. <laughs> <laughs> Truly the spirit of Byron lives yeah. on. Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy, at Andrew Hunter M, James, at James Harkin, and Anna. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can get us on our group account, which is at no such thing, or go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. All of our previous episodes are up there, as well as links to all of the places that we are going to be going to on our upcoming UK tour. Do check it out and please come see us live it's going to be awesome but otherwise we'll see you again next week with another episode goodbye